Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we have got an exciting show lined up for you. I'm extremely excited about it, and I know that you will be too. If you've been tracking along with us in previous episodes of the show, if you're new to the broadcast, just tuning in today, we've been speaking about one of the great challenges facing the Western world. It's something that's prevalent in Indian country, but prevalent in every segment of the North American population, and that is the challenge of putting on extra pounds and actually putting that in your past as far as not something that defines you, not something that holds you back from uh, really achieving optimal health. So we've been speaking about it in some of our recent programs. Some of you know, if you're regular listeners, that uh, we've uh, recently released a program. Well, actually, we're launching it. If you're listening to this broadcast, uh, on February 4th, we're launching a program called Fast 8. We're talking about some different weight loss strategies and looking at it in a very different perspective over the course of eight weeks. One of the people that I've been indebted to is I've been Again, looking at some of the literature on helping people uh, change their history is a, a doctor by the name of Jason Lillis. And the really good news is Jason is actually in the studio today with me, our virtual studio. Dr. Lillis, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Jason, I learned about your work actually through the lay press. You came out with a book a while back uh, called The Diet Trap. And as you and I were talking off air, I love the subtitle, Feed Your Psychological Needs and End the Weight Loss Struggle Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. I know that's a mouthful. We want to talk uh, about that on today's show. And just by way of background, Jason, you've got uh, a number of academic affiliations. You're a researcher. You've uh, been writing books in the lay press. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. I um, you know, got my PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Nevada, Reno, and I worked with Dr. Stephen Hayes there. He's actually one of the originators of the treatment approach I use, which is called acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, said as one word, ACT for short. So that that's kind of where I come by my treatment approach. And then my interest in Health behavior change generally and weight specifically is a personal interest. Um, got some good advice from that mentor of mine back in the day that if you're going to do research, you really should pick something you personally care about because it's a hard road to do research and get studies off the ground and finish them. A lot of work. So, uh, I have a personal interest in health change and, and weight. Everyone. Almost everyone in my family is uh, obese uh, in terms of my immediate family and I, uh, or with obesity is, is the proper way of saying that uh, today. And I myself have gone up and down the weight scale and wondered why I've been on that roller coaster, you know, most of my life. And so I come by the work honestly. Um, so I've applied ACT in this area for 
you know, as far as I can remember now, we're, I think we're up to about 13-ish, 14 years or so. And that took me to Providence, Rhode Island, where I uh, got a job working at the Weight Control and Diabetes Research Center, which is a joint institute of lifespan health and the Brown Medical School. And life took me back to the West Coast, so I remain part-time in that position. And now I also work at a university, Cal North State University, but I continue to do health behavior change research. So it's exciting to have you with us, uh, Dr. Lillis. Uh, so you've got an associate professorship at Brown University at the medical school there and at Cal North State uh, University there in the Sacramento area. So we know you're well-grounded in the academic arena, but what I love you know, sometimes you deal with folks who are in academia and they're just out of touch with what's happening on the ground, but you're really working, you know, one-on-one with people. You're doing research. Uh, it seems like I just ran across a project that's ongoing, talking about design of a big study you're doing in this area. Did I pick up on that correctly? Yeah. Um, yes. So if you're talking about the one that's happening up at Fred Hutchinson up in uh, Washington, I'm involved as a consultant on that, as well as Jonathan Bricker and Evan Foreman's uh, grant looking at a telehealth intervention using ACT for this uh, health behavior change weight control. Yeah, and I've always, uh, in my research, I've tried to keep a clinical role, even a small one, um, so that I can continue to work with individuals, in usually in group settings, and not get too far up that tower and too disconnected from what's actually happening. So we really want to speak about this ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and maybe by way of background, a little bit about my background. So I'm a clinician first, uh, an internal medicine specialist, and shortly after my training was completed in that specialty, I ended up heading up um, a preventive medicine department for a large hospital system, even though I didn't at that time have my boards in preventive medicine or my master's in public health. That all came along later. But uh, in that first role, one of the things I was tasked with doing is helping uh, work with a weight loss program that this hospital system was running in a large urban area. And so, you know, I was there in the trenches just like you were. And one of the things that back in that era was uh, a fairly new concept, at least as it was being applied to weight loss, was something that's now become, let's just put it uh, this way, everybody talks about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, but the counselors, dietitians that I was working with, they were using that model, talking about, in lay terms, reprogramming people's thinking and getting them to re-perceive things and not overgeneralizing and these different uh, distorted forms of thinking they were addressing. So that's one psychological school of thought that's, of course, been brought to bear in this arena. But as I was reading through your material, looking at some of the research that's been done on it, I mean, sure, there's some parallels, but some major differences. Here's the challenge you and I have got, uh, Jason, because we've got a lot of professionals that tune into the show, people throughout Indian country work in tribal health, people outside of Indian country. So we want to speak to them, but we've got a lot of lay folks who join in too. So tell us, first of all, why this is different, this act, than other approaches like CBT or, or other psychological strategies that maybe people have been exposed to, whether they've heard those names or not, in, let's say, a weight loss program? 
Okay, I'll do the best I can in a short time. Um, and I'm going to create a bit of a straw man CBT just for illustrative purposes. Because the way the field is moving, these things are starting to blend more and more to the point where we won't be able to distinguish them 10 or 20 years from now. But if you're talking about a traditional CBT model, I'd say that the easiest way to understand the difference is the traditional CBT model comes from a standpoint of we're going to fix what's not working right in terms of your thinking and feeling, right? And then once that's fixed, you can then kind of live the life the way you want and have more satisfaction, be happier. But that's kind of the general, again, I'm creating a bit of a straw man here, but that's a good way to understand the the sort of model. ACT is coming from a different perspective, which basically says, no, nothing is that's happening is, is broken or wrong or needs fixing, right? So what, whatever thoughts you have is, is fine. Whatever feelings you have is fine. It's the sort of way we're relating to what's happening in us that's keeping us from pursuing the life we want to live. And so the ACT treatment is focused on essentially giving you the skills to notice your thoughts in a different way, so without changing them, but in a way that gets you less stuck in your life, right? And it's it gives you some tools to open up to your feelings in a way, not that they don't hurt anymore, because of course, when you're sad, that hurts. When you're depressed, when you're anxious, you experience that negatively. But experience those things in a way where all of a sudden now it's not, again, getting you stuck or holding you back from pursuing something that's really meaningful or important in your life. So I think that the big distinction is between once, you know, with ACT, you start in a standpoint as everything happening inside you is okay, is normal, is human, is understandable given your circumstances and your history. And we're going to sort of give you the tools to learn how to live with that and move forward and pursue things that matter. The other traditional model is these are symptoms of disorder that we need to treat. And once we treat those effectively, then then you can go on and live your life. So I think that's the big difference in terms of the models. So what I appreciate is you're basically talking with us about how you see all of these disciplines growing, coming together. We're looking at different aspects. So this is not a program that's designed to put one approach in a negative light or another approach in a positive setting and say, hey, you better throw out any techniques that have helped you. But we're trying to look at something that, to me, what really connected, I, I will say, uh, Jason, as I read through your book, is a lot of the opening illustrations, and one that I think resonates throughout Indian country, whether a person has weight challenges or not. And, and maybe I should pause right here. We're not offering this show on American Indian and Alaska Native living because weight issues are something that's a particular Native problem. And I know sometimes people want to generalize and make value judgments about people of indigenous backgrounds and things that may relate to weight, may relate to other things. But we're looking a lot at this whole topic as we look at ACT, the shaming and blaming and some of these things that a person who's might be at their ideal weight in Indian country, they still can relate to some of these things where people have, have pointed at them, pointed at their appearance, maybe because they're Native, maybe because they grew up speaking uh, an indigenous language, whatever it was, however they experienced discrimination. And a lot of, as I listen to your book, you know, these opening stories talking about people who feel defeated, they feel like they've, they're continual failures. 
Speak to us a little bit about that. Someone who's listening right now, Jason, they, they want to turn the, the station off. Uh, they're saying, hey, listen, I don't need to hear any more about weight loss. I just fail at this every time people talk with me. I see how bad I am. Why is there this acceptance in the terminology of this uh, treatment approach? Um, right. So, you know, one of the things about body shape and size is it's not concealable, right? So if you're out in public, um, people can see you and your body and your shape. The stigma against people with a larger body shape is extremely widespread. It develops it, young children. So I don't know how we transmit this, but we get this into the heads of four and five-year-olds to the point where they prefer uh, almost anyone as a friend to someone who has a larger body shape. To mm -hmm. Imagine how that seeps down that young, that early. It just means it's sort of systematically widespread. And it is still to a degree uh, socially accepted to stigmatize a larger body shape. Now, that is very slowly changing, but I emphasize very slowly. So the other part of this that I think is really important to point out is the dominant sort of media promotion of why our waistlines have expanded, and generally speaking, as a world, we weigh more, has been to highlight personal failings, you know, things like mm. willpower. There's not really a lot of evidence that that really plays even an infinitesimal role in what's going on. Um, there's a lot of potential explanations that's probably the least likely. So it's sort of built in. So from very young, there's a stigma towards a larger body shape. And you get messages that if you weigh more, then likely that's due to personal characteristics and failings of yourself. So it's almost impossible not to internalize that and feel shame and blame around that, whether you're trying to lose weight or you did, and now it's gained it back. We definitely have to build on this. You presented a case that a lot of people can resonate with, but we've got to talk about the solution, and that's where we're headed in our next segment. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Dr. Jason Willis is standing by. We will be back talking with some very practical things that can help you to really actually live a full, productive life, even if you feel your waistline is a little bit larger than you'd like. Some great strategies coming up. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. DeRose. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose on today's edition of American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. With me is Jason Lillis, Ph.D. He's an associate professor at both uh, Brown University's medical school out east and out west. He's on the faculty of Cal North State University. He's been working with a psychological technique that's simply abbreviated ACT. We're speaking about how this can make a difference when it comes to you being, um, well, able to live a healthy, productive life, even if you seem to be predisposed to put on some extra pounds Jason, we were speaking in the previous segment that uh, our society is uh, not a good one as far as accepting people who have a little bit uh, larger body type, this stigma starting at very early ages. The other thing that seems to go along with this often is some kind of concept that many people have that somehow if they shame people or somehow... um, you know, just tell them, you know, get your life in order, you know, stop eating so much, exercise more. If they just give them, you know, these value-laden statements, it's somehow going to help them. Can you help us from the psychological research perspective? I mean, is this really a good strategy? Yeah, well, I'll give you a clinical example, and then I'll talk about the research really quick. You know, I uh, we have to weigh people for our research studies, and I have feel very conflicted about that <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Because uh, people have so much psychologically tied into their the number on the scale, which I, I think is a real problem in this area that hopefully I'll get a chance to talk about at some point in this conversation. But I've seen folks have near panic attacks stepping on that scale. And it just tells you that is the result of a lifetime of feeling bad about the number on the scale and what they see in the mirror and what they've heard from other sources related to the number on the scale and what they see in the mirror. So I promise you they've received that message. They do not need it from another person. That's one thing. 
Now, the other part of that is when this has been researched in, you know, well-controlled research studies, and they've been done in a variety of ways, but just to give you an example, having people watch a video of someone being stigmatized for their body shape, for example. Some individuals will respond to that by eating more. So it, in fact, has the exact opposite effect, which, you know, makes sense because you're inducing a distressing experience. And this is, again, not pointing the finger at personal responsibility here. I do not think this is an issue of willpower, personal responsibility. Uh, however, when you're distressed, food is a soother. Food can be a soother, right? So if you combine a toxic food environment that we have with a whole lot of stigma towards body shape, it's not surprising that those things can become associated with each other. So it, it is very counterproductive to point out someone's weight or talk about it or tell them to kind of lose some pounds. It's likely to have more likely to have the opposite effect than uh, the intended effect. I appreciate that. So as we're looking at uh, doing a virtual weight loss initiative that we're actually helping to champion on this radio show, we're trying to learn from people like you and, and really support people, let them know that regardless of what they weigh, they can be successful in this program. But uh, our concern is helping people adopt healthier lifestyle habits that they feel they can embrace. And the end point is not necessarily what they weigh. If they're getting on a healthier program, they're being successful if they stick with the program. So this is some of the messaging that's going behind what we're looking at. Having said that, I want to go back to something that we mentioned in your book, uh, The Diet Trap. If you're just joining us, uh, Dr. Lillis is one of the co-authors of a book called The Diet Trap, the subtitle, Feed Your Psychological Needs and End the Weight Loss Struggle Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And one of the things that was so interesting to me that you spoke about is as we, we look at this whole topic of, you know, people being stigmatized, people being degraded, people feeling that way themselves, feeling like they're failures. One of the things that to me was really interesting, and I know you touch on this in a number of ways, and you've got a, a wealth of experience since you wrote the book some eight years ago, and that is when someone comes to you or they come to a program or they inquire, maybe even about a research program you're doing, and they come with this fear and trepidation, they want to do something in this area, but they're afraid it's just going to be another chapter in a whole litany of failures. How do you address that? So the main thing is, I talk about this sometimes in the context of my research studies. My approach is kind of a, I call it a Trojan horse style approach, which is people come to me often wanting to lose weight. And what I actually want for them is to live a life that's meaningful and satisfying. Mm -hmm. And weight loss can be a, a small part of that and improve health. However, I'm trying to move them off of the number on the scale being an important thing and looking at how healthy habits can empower them to live their life the way they want to live. So that may include no weight loss. That may include mm -hmm. a small amount of weight loss. You know, that may include a moderate amount of weight loss. But the weight is almost secondary to, it isn't almost, it is secondary to healthy habits that empower them to live their life in a way they want to live. And, and what I mean by that is how will improving your food quality 
possibly reducing calories, definitely increasing your physical activity, help you be better in your vocation, whatever you're doing for work? How will it help you be better in your relationships? Does it make you more patient when you can sleep better, when you have less pain? You know, how, how will this facilitate the things in your life that you deeply care about? And in the process of that, slowly trying to move them off this history of weight being the thing, of the number on the scale being the thing, of all the stigma related to the number on the scale and the body shape being the thing, and um, and try to move them to a different outlook on the whole uh, situation. So success doesn't have to be the number. The success can be defined in some more vital, satisfying, and meaningful ways in, in all parts of your life. Now, we're talking about that, and I've noticed just as I've been sharing with people this vision, you know, some of these perspectives that you just articulated right now, a lot of folks are thinking like, well, why would I want to be in a, on a weight loss program where I don't lose weight? And, <laughs> and, and so what has been your experience as you go through folks on this journey? I mean, tell us a little bit about you as a researcher, someone who's trying to contribute also to people's lives to make a difference. Sure. So this whole uh, enterprise, if you will, I don't know what to call it, this research agenda that I've, I've had for, for some time now started with the idea of uh, what if we could uh, influence someone's weight without focusing on their weight? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and the idea was the traditional methods for helping people lose weight are really effective, but only in the short term. So for about three to nine months, you can follow the traditional strategies for losing weight. And for most people, you will lose, you know, somewhere between a mild and moderate amount of weight. Some people lose a substantial amount of weight. It's a low number. And that works for a while. And then it doesn't work anymore. And then you're probably, your audience is probably aware that people tend to gain weight back. And the idea came from the idea that maybe the problem is actually focusing on weight. Uh, maybe actually part of the problem here is that we're focused on the numbers on the scale, that people tend to come in with expectations about what their body will look like after the weight loss and what number they'll hit on the scale. And most people will not reach that. And failing to reach that in part feeds the cycle of giving up the idea that you have a destination point. And since you didn't reach it, it's a failure. And you give up and then you kind of re return to previous habits prior to. And to me, it struck me as the agenda is a big part of the problem here because the way mm. we're defining this is actually getting in the way of people making real lasting change. And so I'm all for folks losing weight. Uh, I just, I, I think the assumptions about where that ends and what the purpose of that is, that's the part I, I hope to work with people on to kind of shift them a little bit off of their initial assumptions. There's no reason not to lose some weight, though. But the question is, what is that for? So one of the things I, I, for someone who's really stuck on the number, we'll pose to them, I'll say, okay, so if, if I can do some magic here and you've reached that goal weight, okay, so I've gotten you to that goal weight, my question to you now is, what is it that you're doing different in your life that's important to you? Because surely the goal can't be to reach this weight and then sit in front of a mirror 
and look at yourself all day and just be happy. <laughs> you know, I, there's a piece to that, but that can't be the end, right? That's not what we're doing. Okay, so something has to be on the other side of this for you. Let's figure out what that is, because I think you can pursue that right now while you're losing weight. This is so helpful because we're really trying to catch this vision of helping people realize that regardless of how you've been treated in the past, and this is true, like I mentioned, whether it's your weight, whether it's your ethnic background, whether it's the language you speak, whether it's where you live, you know, you grew up on the res and people look down on you when you go into town. Um, there's a lot of parallels with this. And whether you're native, whether you're not, these topics are so powerful in our culture. We're so into pointing fingers, blaming, divisive language and rhetoric. And we're really trying to help you be successful. So we've got a lot more stuff to come. We've got some really practical strategies. We're going to tap into Dr. Lillis's experience on that and other uh, things that you really do not want to miss. So stay with us. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be back with the second half of the show right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. 
You're back with the second half of today's broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose speaking with Dr. Jason Lillis. We're speaking about something that uh, may not have been on your radar screen before today's program. We're speaking about a new approach that is, uh, I say new, I say it's new because a lot of folks that I deal with have never heard about it. But it's an approach that really, I believe, has a special relevance to what we're looking at as we're trying to give people tools throughout Indian country and beyond to really help them, well, in a lasting way, to have a positive outlook on something that has been challenging them, something that's been hounding them. It may be this tendency to put on extra weight over the years. We're talking about something called acceptance and commitment therapy We've been talking about Dr. Lillis's book called The Diet Trap that uh, deals with this approach. One of the things, Jason, that I've worked with is I've worked with folks, uh, whether they're dealing with weight loss, whether we're talking about diabetes or high blood pressure, other metabolic diseases that I've spent a lot of time uh, working with folks on when it comes to lifestyle change, is this whole idea of kind of comes out of my experience with uh, helping people with nicotine addiction. So early on, there was a lot of focus on, you know, when people are going through a a nicotine addiction intervention, you really have to have them focused on not smoking. And they're repeating this kind of mantra, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to smoke, I I love being smoke-free, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot of us, as we (laughs) work with things like this, we said, wait a minute, all these people are thinking about is smoking all day long. And the real success comes when you don't focus on what you don't want to do. I know you look at it a little, you know, kind of that same angle, but in a different way. Tell us about weight loss and this whole idea of reprogramming how people think and some of the challenges there. Yeah, well, food is an interesting parallel to smoking because on the one hand, if you had no nicotine for the rest of your life, that would be great. Yeah, but you can't not eat for the rest of your life, right? So you got it. Yeah, you're dealing. You have a co. There's some parallels and and some real distinctions there. Um, yeah, I think there can be a hyper focus on um, food and weight and thoughts about food and thoughts about weight that can people get stuck in those loops. Um, and I do think that traditionally. Like I talked about in an earlier segment, the idea that, you know, a success would be if I just stopped thinking about this, you know, in some way, or if I didn't have these cravings anymore, I didn't feel bad about my body. Well, I'm, you know, as, as, as a human being, <laughs> I've found that to be very difficult in, in terms of controlling what actually is going on in my head and, and how I feel in the moment. I think a lot of people have a similar experience where uh, while we'd like to have more influence over that, oftentimes we feel like we're being kind of pulled along by those things. And so I, I do think that a hyper-focus on that can be um, counterproductive. And I think the setting sort of criteria that that must change before you know, things in your life can be different, I think is, is where the, the sticking point is. Um, and, and, and one we try to work with people on, but, you know, if I just ask the audience listening right now to just think about anything except a, a chocolate donut, for example, like just, just go ahead and think about anything in the world except the chocolate donut, you know, for 10 seconds right now, go ahead, do it. You know, don't think about what it smells like or, Flaky, or <laughs> to, 
you know, I'm cheating a little bit here. Uh, and I do this with clients and it's actually really hard to do. You know, there's a several outcomes here. One is can't do it, you know, cause it, it paradoxically, if you asked yourself to not think about something, lo and behold, the human condition makes us think about it more. Some people will say, well, wait, no, though, I can do it. I cannot think about that chocolate donut. And they may even be correct in a, in a short-term period. But often what you have to do is do some kind of hyper-focus blocking out, you know, concentration on some other thing that doesn't allow any room for you to, you know, actually operate in your life, right? You have to kind of close everything off. Well, that's not really helpful, too. That's not something you could do 24 hours a day. And the research is pretty clear on this, is if you try to do that, uh, even if you're successful in the short term, it's going to come back. And likely it'll come back more frequently and stronger. So it's a bit of a rigged game if you're saying, one of the ways I'm going to tackle this problem is to just stop thinking about food or stop having food thoughts or stop thinking about stigma and how I've been hurt. I mean, a good parallel to this that's not, uh, is kind of trauma. If you think about people who've experienced trauma, and how how uh, dealing with that can often involve a, a really strong attempts to forget or rid yourself of that experience in a way that you're trying for it to never come up, right? And and often people's lives can get fairly narrow in an attempt to do that, to block out all the kinds of things that could remind them of that experience. This is, you know, we're talking about food is not a one-to-one comparison to that, but it's similar in kind in the sense that you won't be able to make that go away for good forever, erase it. You know, there's no tool we have to go into your mind to get those memories out. So you have to find a different road forward that includes, if we go back to now health, thoughts about food that includes feeling shame sometimes, but in a, in a more open way to it, not, you know, not, um, saying, yes, I should be shameful about this, but recognizing I am a human who's had these experiences. So of course I feel the emotion shame and I can move forward carrying that shame with me. So we're kind of programmed to think the thing to do here is change and get rid of the stuff we don't like that's going on inside us. When in fact the research kind of tells us, well, A, that may not work very well. B, that may make it worse in a way. So a lot of these things, as we've been talking in this show, can uh, lead us as we look at our past, look at our present, to demean ourselves, to put ourselves down. This uh, concept of acceptance and commitment therapy, one of the terms that uh, kept coming up is loving yourself, uh, valuing yourself. Tell us a little bit about how that happens, why that's so important when it comes to behavior change. Yeah, I think when you're oriented towards, you know, health behavior change as a means of kind of just life improvement, as opposed to trying to combat the stigma that you've experienced or, you know, reach a weight on a scale. I think that really has to start often with body appreciation. Mm -hmm. We are so trained to look at our body and find the things we hate about it. And I think that's, you know, from the get-go, when we're very young, we're taught about what's an ideal and what's not and everything that doesn't fit. We've 
been with ourselves our whole life. So we've been able to see those things and judge them. And we internalize that from society, culture and things. So uh, I think, you know, starting with body appreciation is really important. Your, if you, your body works tirelessly for you until it can't anymore, you know, and for all of us at some point it, it won't, but while it does, it's working tirelessly and it does everything it can do with whatever we give it. I know that the choices I've made with the kinds of foods I've put in my own body, my body should be pretty mad at me or something, but it does the best it can with what I give it. It does the best it can with the, the, the lack of sleep that I, I provide to it. It should be getting much more. That's my kid's fault, not, not so much my fault, but nonetheless. Um, and it works tirelessly. 24 hours a day to keep the system running the best it can, and it will until it can't run anymore. And so, you know, one of the things to start with is just the idea of looking at what our body does for us tirelessly on a day-to-day basis and start appreciating it for that. You have this great exercise in the book, you know, because some folks are listening, they're, they're saying, I hate my body, but you actually challenge people to start thinking about their heart. And are you, you know, to be thankful for your heart, to be thankful for your digestive system. And, and what's interesting to me is even as a physician, I don't have people typically coming in telling me things they're thankful for. They're talking about the things that are problems. And, you know, we're talking about something that's visible. Uh, we're talking about something that's been the object of shame and blaming. So I'm really curious when you walk people through that exercise in real time, you know, not in a book, when you're saying, you know, I want you to cultivate gratitude, to think about things that you're thankful for about your body. What kind of response do people give you as you do that in, a, let's say, a clinical setting? Mixed. It's a mixed response. Some people will respond very positively to it immediately because it will unlock this perspective that they have been unable to take up until this point and mm. haven't been able to see it from there. Some people will push back strongly because the... Again, the societal message about us looking at what's quote unquote wrong with our body is so powerful. And we've received that message for so long that even entertaining the idea that maybe there's some positive things about our body is, is almost too much initially. And, and it takes some time to sort of work, work through some of that. So I think there's a range of responses and probably some audience members listening to this program may have had an, a negative reaction to the idea that I would just use the words body appreciation. I know I get that out in the world as some, some people have a negative response to just that concept, um, you know, condoning. I won't get into that mm-hmm. more deeply, but um, yes. Yeah, so I think there's a range of responses there, but, and I think it's important to, as a, as an important step, in situating what you're what actually the goal is here. And I, I'll start to sound like a broken record because I'll keep returning to this, but this is why are we doing this? You know, what, why make healthy behavior changes? Is it the numbers on the scale? Or again, is this something that's going to empower your life in a wide range of ways? And I think if it's going to empower your life in a wide range of ways, that's a much different thing. And, and then it's a really useful stance to look at your body and say, you know, my body really already does a lot for me. I can help it do more. Mm. I can help it do more. I love that picture. Come back to this term, 
acceptance. Why is that in the title of this approach to uh, psychological intervention, if you will? Yeah, it's interesting. I've gone back and forth on the use of the word acceptance over the years. And I think when people hear the word acceptance, they often think of resignation. I have to put up with this. Like I have no agency in the matter. And because of that, I haven't loved it as a word, but it is in, it is in the treatment approach mm-hmm. name. Now we'll often use a different term called willingness, mm-hmm. but I think more captures what we mean. And that because willingness is an active, has an active feel to it, right? I'm choosing to do something. And why would I choose to do that? Right. So in this case, acceptance of thoughts, you know, let's say judgments or negative thoughts related to your body doesn't mean you're just resign yourself to feeling bad. It means you're allowing yourself to experience those things in the service of pursuing things that are important to you. And that's the willingness piece. Jason, we have to step away just briefly one more time. We're going to come back with Dr. Lillis. We're trying to give you things that help you look at the whole subject of weight loss differently some tools from a uh, technique, an approach, a treatment approach called ACT. And uh, we've got some really great material coming up in our final segment. We'll be back. I encourage you to stay by. I'm Dr. David DeRose. More right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose and with Dr. Jason Lillis. Dr. Lillis, a Ph.D. psychologist. He's the author of the book, The Diet Trap, Feed Your Psychological Needs and End the Weight Loss Struggle Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. He's an associate professor at Brown Medical School and at Cal North State University, spanning the whole of North America from East Coast to West, a vast uh, range of experience. Jason and I have been speaking about some things that I believe can change your perspective on weight loss. It's of special interest, as we've been telling you on this show, about our program that launches on February 4th, a virtual program that we call Fast 8. We invite you to uh, jump on. If you haven't gotten the website down, it's TimelessHealingInsights.org, TimelessHealingInsights.org. If you've got a quirky browser or maybe a normal browser, you may need to stick www. in front of it, but you'll see the uh, registration there for the Fast Aid program. You can download our handout, which I'm telling folks is a work in progress. We're incorporating things like the wisdom we're getting from people like Dr. Lillis as we put together the materials and roll them out for you. Absolutely no charge for the program. And uh, Jason, as we've been trying to help people realize that uh, they can go on a health journey where they're not going to be shamed, they're not going to be blamed. I've got to tell you about a chapter in my educational experience. So after I did my uh, medical doctor's degree, and I got it actually not all that far from where you're living right now in the southern part of your state at Loma Linda University, I uh, finished my internal medicine training, then went back uh, for preventive medicine training. I actually did it remotely as I was working out in the field, working with a number of entities. Actually, interestingly, on the on the East Coast and the West, I had a mentor at Yale and uh, uh, also working with folks back at Loma Linda, my alma mater. But um, one of the classes I took in the MPH was one that when I looked at it, values clarification, I said, oh, I mean, I don't know why. I just thought this is not going to be a class that I'm really going <laughs> to be interested in. And I hope one of my major professors isn't listening because uh, <laughs> she was the instructor but um, it really was a class that, that kind of opened my mind to a lot of things that I think we often don't discuss. And I know this whole area of values has been something that you were sharing with me off air is something that really has resonated with you. So tell us what the whole discussion, at least in the public health arena, is when it comes to values and why it's so important in your uh, assessment when dealing with real live people who are struggling with these things. Yeah, the simplest way I can say it is health behavior change in the long term. So changing, you know, what you eat and moving your body more and just taking good care of yourself is very difficult. It's it just mm -hmm. we've learned it's very difficult to do. And if it's not tied to things that are deeply important to you, you're much less likely to keep it up, right? So if I tell you, eat these things and exercise this amount a week because I say so, because I'm the doctor. That may work for a little while, but it's really not going to work for a very long period of time. It will only stick if it matters to you in some way. And so that's really a big part of what 
in terms of my own approach and similar approaches try to do is situate this in your life. If you're going to make these changes, they take effort, they take time. You're going to be tired lots of days. You're going to be very busy. Uh, this takes resources from you. Now, so it should be giving something back. It should be giving something back to you as well. Um, so, you know, one of the most powerful interventions we have is, and this is going to maybe sound a little hokey, but it's true, is to simply set aside time to write about what you deeply care about, what's important to you in your life. Mm. It's a very powerful intervention that you can do in five minutes or 10 minutes. You can do it once. You can do it once a week. You can do it. But think about how little we stop and pause and say, what's important to me? What's the direction of my life? And am I going in that direction? You know, we, we usually just kind of run around and get through the day and don't think about these things very much. So if you start to develop a, a, a good sense of what you really care about, what's meaningful, then the next question is, well, how can being healthier help that in some way? And I, I think if you make that connection, you have the kind of motivation that can't be manufactured by a doctor telling you what to do. Um, it's a self-driven motivation at this point. Um, if you find that, you know, having more energy and feeling less pain and, and um, less kind of winded throughout your day and, you know, your mental health, your mood is a bit better. That will help you in a variety of different areas, you know, touching on relationships and touching on the kind of work you can do. And once you make that connection, that one thing improves the other. And that you've decided this is important because I care about this relationship and this or whatever it is for you personally, then that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. What happens to the, the numbers on the scales? You know, hopefully they go down a little, but that's secondary. That's a secondary piece of this in terms of what, you know, I think the end goal should be if you want to look at sustained changes over the long term. Now, I know one of the things we've been trying to do is, again, uh, avoid putting people back into the cycle of, of shame and blame and discouragement. Just to get a question for you, kind of open-ended question. It's uh, an answer that I've sometimes given people when they talk with me about what is my ideal weight. We can, you know, pull out some kind of chart. We can get out skin calipers. We can put them in the pool and we can do, you know, water displacement. But one of the definitions I've used, and I'm kind of interested on in your feedback because I, I think it could be a two-edged sword as they'll tell people, your ideal weight is what you weigh when you're on an ideal program for you. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you think there's some pitfalls there? Do you like that? Do you kind of push back? What's your initial reaction? I like that quite a bit because I, I think, you know, the science is going to teach us a lot about this over the next 10 to 20 years. You know, I have a colleague who, I, who says you can influence your weight, you can't control it. And I think that's I think that's a good way to think about it. If you have a, a number, you might want to work a little bit on letting go of that number because mm -hmm. we do know you can influence your weight, but finding a, a specific floor is difficult for a variety of reasons. And I think the idea of having an ideal weight is a concept that's probably done a lot more bad than good because the more we're learning about the physiology, you know, once you gain weight, Losing that weight, your body fights against it, right? So, so the idea that we can look at it in a vacuum, an ideal weight for a specific person doesn't make sense. It has to do with your genetics, it has to do with 
what kind of highest weight you've reached before and how your body responds to the weight loss. And so I like your approach to where your body settles if you're on a program that makes sense for you and that's promoting your health and that's promoting you living a better life. That makes a lot of sense to me as a way of looking at it. And part of it, just to reiterate something you shared earlier in the show, Dr. Lillis, is when I was uh, running that weight loss program early on, um, I was distressed by the people that made just great progress and they didn't get to that magic number, you know, like you mentioned. And it was just, it was just unrealistic. I mean, they couldn't exercise five hours a day and eat 500 calories or, and be the same weight as their sister was or their next door neighbor. And so just this, uh, you know, this perspective where you're focused on these healthier habits of looking at some of the things, the pitfalls mentally. Again, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, Dr. Lillis is the co-author of a book uh, that deals with this topic. He called it uh, The Diet Trap, Feed Your Psychological Needs, and End the Weight Loss Struggle Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. I think it's a great launching uh, point for this whole uh, discussion. You want to dive into the topic, a lot of practical exercises. And uh, like everything, we don't mention a book because we necessarily endorse every word in it. Uh, Jason wrote it eight years ago, so he probably, if he's like me as an author, he said, you know, I would have changed that. But the point is, I think it gives you a lot of useful material. Jason, we're in the home stretch. The show is winding up. Any words of encouragement you'd like to give listeners, especially those who've struggled with this, and maybe they're getting some glimmers of hope, but you want to drive some points home? Yeah, I think I just want to put a plug in again for just this idea of self-compassion. Just understand if you have struggled with your body shape or your weight, that very powerful forces in the environment have conspired to a degree to to push our weights higher. There's a food science and the way foods are created and distributed now is a big part of it. The change of the environment uh, in terms of walking versus driving and things like that. There's a host of factors that don't involve your personal responsibility for that. It doesn't mean you can't seek a healthier lifestyle, but um, often we carry the burden of, of the idea of this being a, a personal failing. And I would say, uh, that decidedly, I do not think that's the case, and that having some self-compassion about the journey you've been on up until this point is is very important. Tremendous message, Jason. Thank you for the whole show. I know you're a real busy uh, fellow, running cross country, uh, and two uh, you know professorships, associate professorships, and uh, clinical research, authoring, working with patients. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's all for today's show. Hopefully you've gained some encouragement on some of the things that are challenging you. And as always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.